turn in our Bibles to John chapter 19 as we continue our study through John's gospel together. And if you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have some copies of the scripture. Please get their attention so you can hold a Bible yourself and see what God's word says as we study it together. You know, God never ceases to amaze me in his timing. How long have we been going through the Gospel of John together and just amazing how uh, in this season the Lord has us just kind of tracking right along with what we're celebrating here with Good Friday coming up and Easter Sunday. Well, we couldn't uh, plan that any better if we uh, tried to uh, map that out, but just a wonderful thing. This morning we pick up in John's Gospel. We left off in verse 24. We're going to pick up in verse 25 and complete John chapter uh, 19 this morning. I'm not going to read all of that on the front side. I'm just going to read the first few verses to set the context. But as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read our portion of scripture this morning? It says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And Father, we just bow our heads now humbly before you in this moment as we continue in worship, Lord, we've prayed, we've sang, we've fellowshiped, and we want this as much to be an act of worship as we humble our hearts, our soul, and our mind before you this hour. And we pray that every intent and purpose, Lord, behind what your Holy Spirit recorded these things for, would speak to our hearts in a personal way, that you'd give us an ear to hear that, Lord, you would help us to be attentive and able to hear that still, small voice of your Holy Spirit, and that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your Spirit and power speaking directly to our hearts. Bless your word, we ask expectantly, praying that in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, perhaps you acknowledge, and I sure hope so, the historical fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago. But I would ask this morning, how much has that realization that Jesus died on the cross for you personally affected and influenced your own life as an individual? It's one thing to acknowledge a historical fact that it took place but the realization that Jesus did that for you personally really can be a life-altering experience. I know it was for me. I hope the love of Christ is what compels you. And that personal consideration, acceptance of that reality can really powerfully impact a person. And I want to encourage you this morning as we go through this section of Scripture considering the record of Jesus' death, his 
burial, that these familiar things perhaps wouldn't be something we brush off lightly, but perhaps we'd consider them for ourselves in a real personal way. Remember the background at this point, Jesus has already undergone unthinkable human suffering. He's been kept up all night long. Uh, He has been scourged. We talked about that last time where his body would be whipped brutally with this uh, leather whip of nine strands of leather with little pieces of uh, lead or bone sharp uh, pieces attached to the end of it as they would come down upon his body, literally ripping uh, portions of his flesh off, exposing the skeletal tissue, even at times the vital organs underneath, the pain of that, and not confessing anything during the process, which means he took the full brunt as they would come down harder and harder if you did not confess anything that you or others were guilty of he was blindfolded we've seen on occasion punched in the face while he was blindfolded he's been assaulted multiple times his beard ripped out of his face he's been spit on continually he's been mocked and disgraced and even humbly stripped of his clothing in public to further disgrace and humiliate him and then as we saw lastly then crucified between two criminals enduring an execution process crucifixion as we talked about which quite honestly is probably one of the cruelest forms of capital punishment that was ever created. And certainly the Romans uh, learned how to perfect the pain and the prolonged uh, anguish in that process. As we left off at the end of chapter 19 last time, we then saw a group of irreverent Roman soldiers there at the foot of the cross. And as they're there at the foot of Jesus' cross as he's suffering, they're disregarding Jesus' value. More than that, remember, they were actually playing games at the foot of Jesus' cross. And as I look at that, sadly, there are still many today, let's be very honest, that have little guard and respect for who Jesus is and for what Jesus did for humanity. In some ways, it's fair to say, I think, that there are people who not only are disinterested in Jesus, but they're actually playing games right in the face of God. Uh, And some people with the same irreverence and lack of value towards Jesus and what he did, to this day, there are still people who make light of spiritual matters. They actually make light of and think that it's something of very little value or no value of all disrespecting who Jesus is and what he actually did. Now, in contrast to that, look with me in verse 25 as we pick up because notice the contrast. It says, verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, it would be Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So notice the contrast now. Now we find four believing and faithful women who are also at the foot of the cross for a totally different reason because they love Jesus. And they deeply appreciate everything about Jesus. It says here in verse 25 in our text, they stood by the cross as Jesus suffered. Why? To be supportive of him in his hardest hour of his humanity. There they are with him. And and as he's suffering to obey the will of God, they want to demonstrate at that hour their loyalty to Jesus and their tremendous love for Jesus. And I think what a beautiful example these women are because we find them still following Jesus even when things got messy. No pun intended. Even when it got really hard to follow the Lord. 
And listen, sometimes things happen in life and there's pain or difficulty or confusing experiences. And and sometimes, let's just be very honest, it it actually gets kind of hard to keep following the Lord. But here are these women, even when it's hard to keep following the Lord, even when things had happened recently that were challenging their faith as they watched this happen to Jesus, even as they were dealing with things uh, that was making it uneasy circumstantially, and when others would not, they chose to continue to keep following Jesus, even if others weren't, they were going to continue. The Bible tells us, or not the Bible, but that old ancient song, though none go with me. Still, I will follow. And these women are a perfect example of that as we find them now at the foot of the cross. And let's look who's here. It tells us four people particularly. First of all, it says that Mary, Jesus' mother, was there. Now, any mother in the room, and certainly I think a father as well, be realistic. Imagine the emotional pain and the heartache for Mary as she is watching this now take place to her own son. I mean, we love our children as parents. We want what's best for them. And more than that, a lot of times as parents, because we love them so much, we even, don't we, we try and spare them in every way possible from as much pain and suffering. And if anything happens to them, it hurts us tremendously. Mary birthed Jesus. She raised Jesus. She cared for him as a young child, held him in her arms and took care of him through his earthly life as he was growing up, just like every other mother does. Don't take away the natural reality here. She has the same love for him as a mother would for a child, the same emotional bond and concern that any parent does. And consider what she is now having to witness and to watch in this moment here. As a mother, she's having to witness this horrible injustice and this horrific treatment of her son who's done nothing wrong to make him deserving of of, of what he's experiencing here. Treating her son as if he has no value. Watching him be whipped and spit on and beaten and disgraced publicly in front of everyone else, mocking him and shaming him in utter cruelty, and he deserves absolutely none of this. And Mary, as his mother, is literally now at the foot of the cross having to watch her child be wrongly murdered right before her very eyes. Imagine this. The pain, the emotional torment she must have been going through, but yet a prophecy of 30 years prior was being fulfilled in that very moment because Luke chapter 2, if you want to write it here or in your notes, Mary and Joseph, the Bible says, when Jesus was first born, brought him to the temple to dedicate him. And that day when they brought him to the temple, Luke 2 records for us, there was an elderly man named Simeon who God had told he would not die until he saw God's Messiah, the Savior. So this elderly man spent his time in the temple looking around, waiting for Messiah. And one day the Holy Spirit prompted his heart as Mary and Joseph came in with this new little born young son. And as they come into the temple there, it says that Simeon's heart is prompted by the Spirit. He goes over to ask if he can hold Jesus. And you know, like any parent, especially if it's your firstborn, they were probably a little uncomfortable with that you know the firstborn thing is and all of a sudden this man comes up and can i hold your baby and they're probably sizing him up and looking at him you want to check to make sure everything is kosher with him and it says that he took simeon took jesus baby jesus into his arms 
and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That's what he said as he held Jesus. And then he went on to continue to utter more prophetic things about the life of Jesus, how he would bring light to the Gentiles and salvation to the people of Israel. It says, Joseph and Mary were marveling at these words. And then it says this, and then Simeon blessed them, the parents, and said to Mary, listen, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many Israel. And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And when she first heard that, she probably thought, well, the rest of the prophecy was good, but that was pretty weird. <laughs> but now 30 years later, can you imagine? It had to have been like, like, a, like somebody who's sticking a sword in her chest as she's watching somebody hurt her own kid. And like a sword through her heart, she's watching this happen to Jesus. And the grief and the emotional pain that must have come over her like a sword piercing heart. And all she could do was stand beside him. All she could do was just be supportive in that hour and work through her own pain as it happened. We're told as well here in verse 25 that also the sister of Mary was there. That would be Salome, who also was the mother of James and John. And if you remember, Salome was that one who went to Jesus at one point and said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, I want my two sons to be able to sit on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom. And how awkward it must have been at this moment as she is now there realizing what a presumptive and foolish request, quite honestly, that was. Because when she asked that, Jesus said to her, woman, you have no idea what you're actually asking for. And now here she is at the foot of Jesus' cross and who's on his right and who's on his left? Two people who are suffering excruciating torment and pain and that's what she was asking to be on the right and the left of jesus and at that moment i'm sure she is humbled thinking what an utter mistake how foolish i was to ask for something like that that was so presumptive here i am trying to selfishly jockey for position and push my kid forward and manipulate a situation and, and she must have in that moment felt so humbled at the foot of the cross at the mistake she had made to ask such a thing. We're also told that Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. We don't know a whole lot about her, but we see her quiet devotion here to Jesus. And then fourthly, the last person we see mentioned in verse 25 is Mary Magdalene. The Bible says that Jesus had miraculously cast seven demons out of this woman. So it doesn't surprise me to see her at the foot of the cross. This was a woman who had experienced the life-changing power of the Lord. You want to talk about radical deliverance? Seven demons cast out of your life? This was someone who had experienced the power of the Lord, and so she's compelled to follow Jesus with incredible gratitude. And here she is showing that gratitude. Now, I think each of these women in their various conditions, also represent in some ways good reasons and times why we ought to position ourselves at the foot of the cross as well. For example, like Mary Magdalene, because our life has been powerfully transformed by a work of the Lord. Like Mary Magdalene, perhaps your life has been transformed and powerfully changed by Jesus. Boy, that ought to give you a reason to want to go and sit at the foot of the cross. And to be somebody who humbly comes continuously to the foot of Jesus' cross as a sense of gratitude to render worship to him, no matter how hard it is or what's going on to say, but look, he changed my life. He changed my life. 
Nothing's going to keep me from coming to the foot of the cross because of what he did in my life and the gratitude you want to render. And sometimes I think we need to be at the foot of the cross because perhaps like Salome who made a pretty poor mistake in what she had asked and what she had done and whenever we fail and make mistakes that sense of guilt and shame over what we've done should be the thing that causes us to come humbly to the foot of the cross once again and to appreciate what Jesus' cross represents and what he did for us and receive his forgiveness. Or maybe even at times like Mary, Jesus' mother, we need to come to the foot of the cross when our heart is completely broken and something has just crushed us in our spirit. And maybe we're working through a tragedy or something that's brought such disappointment and heartache and, and something that is just really hard to cope with in our life. Listen, those are the times to just come and position yourself at the foot of Jesus' cross and just to experience what only you can from him as you consider his suffering and let that be something to help you with love and comfort as you go through your personal suffering and heartache. Well, verse 26 then goes on to say, And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing by, he said then to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and then he turned and said to the disciple, and again, this would be John. Remember, he's the one that took this title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this is John there as well. He turns to John and says, behold your mother. And from that hour, the Bible tells us, that disciple, John, took her into his own home. So John now begins to give a record of a few of what are known as seven statements that Jesus made from the cross. He focuses particularly here on the third statements of Jesus because they pertain directly to him to John who's experiencing this interaction with Jesus and Mary his mother being there again he's the one as I said who called himself the disciple Jesus love we talked about that and we're going to talk about that in a moment but John doesn't record the first two statements that Jesus utters from the cross and as we said before remember every time he uttered a statement from the cross it meant that he had to, as his arms were up above his head, his weight slumped down because of the body and his feet pierced down below, that he had to use the, the nails through his, his wrists and through his feet to push and pull himself up to be able to have breath to utter out a statement every time. So each of these statements had tremendous importance as he had to suffer excruciating pain to utter them. The first statement Jesus made is in Luke 23, verse 34 regarding Jesus concern of forgiveness listen for people who were wrongly treating him that he was concerned that those who were wrongly hurting him would experience the Lord's forgiveness in their life it says that Jesus first statement was this father forgive them for they don't know what they do they're doing it in ignorance father forgive them have mercy upon them and I think as Jesus uttered that statement showing tremendous love and mercy and kindness, seeking forgiveness, I think that is possibly what then stirred and softened the heart of one of those two criminals who was next to him to actually open his own heart to the Lord because he could not believe the love and mercy of Jesus because Jesus second statement also comes in Luke 23 verse 39 to 43 let me read it to you here's the second statement of Jesus it says one of the criminals that were hanging next to him blasphemed saying if you are the Christ save yourself and us but the other answering rebuked him saying do you not even fear God 
seeing you're under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, second statement, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The second statement Jesus makes is the assurance of someone who humbly turns their heart to him in faith that they will be with him in eternal paradise. That because of what he was doing was so sufficient, he had the confidence. Again, that man, as he turns to Jesus, that was a deathbed conversion. This man was on that cross because he had committed crimes worthy of capital punishment. And in that moment, he becomes a broken, humbled man. And in the last moments before he expires, he humbles himself, realizes who Jesus is, and he doesn't have a track with the four spiritual laws. All he has is a heart and faith to turn to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm receiving the due reward for my crimes. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say, well, listen, if you could get down and attend church for at least six months, if you could read at least three chapters a day or pray certain prayers or give enough money, or you could get down and if they could arrange a quick water baptism, then you... Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. By faith alone, by the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ, this man receives assurance. Now the third statement Jesus makes is what we now find in John's gospel here in verse 26 and 27, where again, as we said, Jesus addresses John and Mary, his mother, as they're there at the foot of the cross. And what he's doing is seeking to honor his mother and make sure that after his death, as a widowed woman, she would be cared for. So he turns to Mary and says to her, Behold your son, identifying John. And then he says to John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, it says John and Mary understanding this, John took her into his own home. So Jesus, knowing that he would no longer be around, wants to make sure his elderly mother is cared for in his absence now. And wanting to honor his mother, he makes arrangements for her to be supported and cared for by John in her old age. What a beautiful example of Jesus, the perfect man, as a son, seeking to honor his mother in this way, showing practical care and concern for his parent. Again, I think as we look at this section here, we can learn more about the nature and the character of our Lord Jesus. The first thing I would just say is this, is notice Jesus' focus and how he handles suffering. Consider this. Remember we've talked about how much suffering Jesus has already endured and he is currently in excruciating pain and suffering. And typically when we are hurting and suffering in any form, it's usually quite distracting personally. I mean, let's all be honest. When we go through a hard time, we're hurting or we're suffering, we kind of tend to become fixated on ourselves and on what we're dealing with and the pain we're going through. And, and that's usually what consumes our thoughts. We're thinking about ourselves. We're concerned about, and a lot of times we're even in our conversation talking about what we're going through and our suffering and our hardship during that time. Here is Jesus under tremendous personal suffering 
And in this moment, please notice, he's suffering physically, he's suffering emotionally, and instead of being consumed with thoughts about himself, what's he doing? He's concerned with and thinking about how he can help and serve others in the midst of it. He's thinking about his mother and and other people. And what an example of the nature of Jesus. This was just the nature of Jesus. And what a great conviction to my heart and an exhortation to all of us, a great example to try and walk in, even in the midst of our own sufferings, that sometimes maybe, and I'm not diminishing the value of any pain or suffering we go through, But maybe sometimes the pain and the suffering is to bring us to a place where in some way generates a greater compassion within us to be more aware and conscious of the needs of other people around us and their suffering. And that rather than become fixated and consumed and and so hyper-focused on our own suffering that maybe it would help us therapeutically to help other people in the midst of our own suffering. And Jesus here shows this beautiful example of this, making arrangements for his mother. And notice as well, Jesus doesn't automatically look to and rely on his biological family in this hard time. What does he do? He turns to John, who was a disciple of the Lord and a believer with a commitment to the Lord. Remember, Jesus had multiple, the Bible tells, biological siblings. He, he could have turned to any one of the other biological siblings and said, hey, take care of mom when I'm not around anymore. But at this point, Jesus' biological family were not yet believers. They weren't followers of the Lord. So I find it unique and interesting that Jesus chose to lean on and to look to not his biological family in the hard hour, but to his spiritual family, to the eternal family, the family of God. He, He wants his mother to be in the home of a believer. That's why he tells John to take care of her because he's concerned about her spiritual welfare. And in some ways, it shows the connection of the spiritual family uh, together with the fact that, yes, we have a biological family. Listen, I'm not saying that we should not rely on our biological family and have close bonds. I hope we do. I teach and train my family that, listen, this is family right here. This is it. This is what God gave to you. And I strongly uphold the value of that. But I'll tell you this, I think sometimes we need to use the Lord's wisdom in hard times and to realize biological family is not always perfect. And the reality is, this is your eternal family. And the same way they say blood runs thicker than water, well, I found sometimes that the Spirit of God at times even runs deeper than blood. And there's bonds and there's help and there's assistance sometimes that we can find among the family of God to assist us in our hard hours. And what a noble heart John shows here as he embraces this valuable ministry of love to take Mary in and to care for her as his own mother. Well, verse 28 then tells us at this point, Jesus, knowing all things, were accomplished. So notice Jesus now has a sense that this has been accomplished. Now, Let me just mention briefly here, the fourth statement of Jesus we don't get. We get the fifth here in verse 28. The fourth statement of Jesus comes in Mark 15, verse 33 and 34, where there it says that when the sixth hour or noon had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at that hour, Jesus cried out saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And the reason that the darkness came over the land and the reason Jesus makes this utter cry to his father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is understand in this moment, the sin of all of humanity historically was being put upon the sinless, pure, holy son of God. And then the wrath of the righteous indignation of a just God is being fired down upon Jesus Christ as he's becoming the sin offering for the whole world and something I'll never dare to try and fully grasp or explain it there of an eternal transaction was taking place between the Father and the Son and among the Godhead where Jesus goes through this utter sense of this horrible momentary separation as sin comes upon him, as the wrath of God comes upon him in that moment that he makes this cry. So that's why verse 28 says, knowing now that all things were accomplished, that what he did was sufficient, Jesus now cries out saying that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 28, I Thirst. Now, again, the crucifixion process caused severe dehydration. Just the experience alone, intense thirst. So Jesus, in fulfillment of Scripture, now utters, I thirst. Again, if you look at Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, it describes about the tongue clinging to the jaw and just the, the thirst that Jesus would have in this moment. Now, the reason I believe he cries out, I thirst, is because he wants his tongue to be moistened so he can utter these last two statements, which are incredibly profound and very important. Verse 29 says, Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it up to his mouth. Now earlier they had offered Jesus, the other accounts tell us, wine mixed with myrrh and he refused it and he would not drink it. And wine mixed with myrrh was basically a form of like an analgesic to kind of deaden the pain sensation. And as Jesus was offered this earlier on in his sufferings, he refused it, it seems, because he wanted A, to have a clear mind and B, he wanted to experience the fullness of of the pain and the suffering of humanity as he was dying in our place. But now they offer Jesus, it says, sour wine, something different, which is kind of like just diluted cheap wine, we might say. It probably tastes like straight vinegar, just something very unpleasant. And they soak a sponge and they lift this up to Jesus' dry mouth to moisten his tongue because people are very interested now. They, they want to hear these statements that Jesus is making. And he's having trouble articulating words because of the severe dry mouth syndrome that's going on. So they moisten now his mouth for this important cry he's about to make. Verse 30. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So he's about to die. He utters now one final statement, or excuse me, one of the final statements. This would be the sixth of seven, which has tremendous importance. It's three words in the English. It's one word in the Greek. In the English, it's translated, it is finished. In the Greek, it's the word tetelestai, which means translated completed. It also means paid in full or fulfilled. The word was used in multiple ways. It was used when a servant would finish his master's business. When he finished his master's business, he would come back and say, Tetelestai, it's completed. It's been finished. Your will has been accomplished. 
It was also a term that was used when a priest would inspect a lamb for sacrifice. Once that sacrificial lamb was approved, the priest would then say the same thing, completed, fulfilled. It's been adequately inspected and it is approved for the sacrifice. It also was used as well, that word, in regards to paying off a financial debt. When you finally paid off your debt, you would say, Tetelestai, paid in full. It's finished. The idea is that that which was required to be paid, the payment, the obligation was now totally fulfilled. It was satisfied, paid in full. And fourthly, and perhaps most interestingly, it was also believed to be written on certificates of debt for those who were criminals, which is very interesting because what they would do is when you would commit a crime, let's say you stole an apple from the market and then when you were running through, you knocked over an old lady and she had cardiac arrest and she died. And so now you're going to get thrown in the slammer. So they would write on your certificate of debt, okay, stealing one apple and murder. And then they would list this is the punishment or the sentence that must be served. As you were then incarcerated, they would nail your certificate of debt outside of the place you were in prison, suffering your sentence for your wrongdoing. And it listed what you did wrong. And then it also listed the amount of time that needed to be served to be punished adequately for those offenses and crimes. And then when you were released, they would take your certificate of debt and they would write across it, guess what? Tetelestai, paid in full. They would give it to you for this reason, so that nobody could ever try and punish you for those same crimes again, because you could say, no, look, the punishment's been paid for. You cannot punish me again. Yes, I did those things, it's right there. But it's paid in full now. It's been completed. And how amazing to think that this is the statement Jesus makes regarding his life and his death accomplishments as God and man, as a sinless one, in touch with divinity and in touch with humanity. And he now dies sacrificially in our place upon the cross regarding the fulfillment of the will of God to rescue the world and reconcile it back to God. Jesus said, it's finished. Regarding the need of Jesus to be that acceptable lamb of God who could take away the sin of the world, the approved one, Jesus said, it's satisfied. I've been inspected. I'm the perfect lamb of God. It's finished. It's completed. Regarding supplying what is necessary to pay off the debt of your sin and my sin, Jesus said, it is finished. Paid in full. Nothing left remaining to take care of. The result of Jesus' work is that it's totally completed, perfectly fulfilled, paid in full. Regarding our certificate of debt, and some of us got some pretty long certificates of debt, with all of our offenses and things that we've done wrong, and our sins and our mistakes before God, Jesus has taken that, and he's written across it, Tetelestai, paid in full. You can never be punished for those things again. God would never punish you for those things because Jesus was punished sufficiently for every single one of our failures. And he would never repunish us for those things again. And how wonderful to have the assurance that Jesus' work was that efficient. It was that effective that it is completed. Hebrews 9 and 10 speak of this greatly. Hebrews 9 says Jesus should offer himself 
once, the Bible tells us. Not like the priests who would come in continuously year after year with the blood of another animal because it was never totally sufficient. Jesus, the Bible says, was offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 10 says, by that will we have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Listen, once for all. Once for all. Every high priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Listen, we must understand, and not just understand, we must humbly believe this reality of the sufficiency of the completeness of Jesus' suffering and death as our substitute upon the cross because there's nothing left to be done. There's nothing that can be done to add to it, to make us in better standing with God. And that truth has to be believed and humbly accepted personally. And here's why. Because when we fail, we're prone to think we have to do something to get back in good graces with God again. So you blow it and then you think, oh, I just... So all of a sudden, then you retract from God because I'm not worthy to pray. Right. You were never worthy to pray. Oh, I can't read my Bible. That's so hypocritical. Right. Because your Bible is going to tell you, yes, you're a hypocrite, lousy sinner. That's why you need Jesus. And what Jesus did was sufficient. It was complete. It was all about grace and just your belief in the finished work. And so when we think we have to do something to rework ourselves back into right standing with God instead of just humbly believing and coming to Him in faith and throwing ourselves at the foot of the cross, honestly, please hear, we're diminishing the effectiveness of what Jesus did. We're in essence saying, well, what you did, Lord, I don't know if it was good enough completely. So I got to help it a little bit. I got to do some things to kind of atone for my bad behavior or wrongdoing. No, that's diminishing the value of the sacredness and the suffering of what Jesus did. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking perhaps the way to become into a right relationship with God is by church attendance or religious activity or doing some good works, please understand you are just dishonoring God because Jesus did the work. They asked Jesus, what must we do to you know, do the works of God, Jesus said, this is the work, singular, of God, to believe upon the one whom he has sent, because it's finished. And this is so important that we realize this, that we don't say, oh, I'm working on it. There's nothing to work on. We're to believe, to receive his sufficiency, to know that it was completed, that no matter our performance, it's our faith and confidence in the finished work of Jesus that gives us our forgiveness and our righteous standing. Now, having just said it's finished, verse 30 then tells us that Jesus shows his victory in his death. This is where he made his final statement, not recorded, where it says, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The Bible tells us that Jesus at that moment said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And notice, at this moment... Knowing the work was complete, Jesus dismisses himself from his physical body, gave up his spirit, which means this, Jesus consciously chose the very moment that he died physically. He made a conscious decision. Now, verse 31 goes on to say, therefore, because it was the preparation day, that is the day prior to Passover, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, 
for that the Sabbath was the high day, it was a high Sabbath because of the feast, the Jews went and asked Pilate that the legs of those being crucified might be broken and that they might, their bodies, the idea is verse 31, be taken away. So during the same moment, a request is now being made among the Jews. They go to Pilate, who's in control of things as the governor in the area. Due to their Passover feast, they want the deaths of those being crucified to be hastened so that they could quickly remove the physical corpses and dispose of the bodies. Crucifixions, as we said, lasted sometimes up to days. It was prolonged suffering. And even after the days of suffering, even after the body expired, Romans typically would leave bodies on the cross for then days afterwards, let them decompose. And the idea was to just send a message that if you fall under the judgment of Rome, this will be your fate as well. Well, the Jews want to celebrate their feasts. They want to dismiss their guilty conscience. So we read here that they ask for the legs of those crucified to be broken and their bodies removed. Now, breaking the legs of a crucified person would quickly hasten the death process. As I said, because of the condition, they usually died of ultimately suffocation or hypercarbia as the carbon dioxide would build up because they couldn't breathe properly. And they had to push up on their legs and pull with their hands uh, to try and get a breath in and then to exhale quickly. If you broke their legs, that stopped that process real quick. So imagine the reality of this. They're asking for this to happen so their bodies can be discarded quickly. And it says, verse 32, then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. So the soldiers come now with this either wooden mallet or a, 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 a steel or iron uh, bar and they break probably the shin area of the victims. If you can imagine the excruciating pain of that. And they break the first. For whatever reason, they walk by Jesus. They go then to the criminal on the other side of him, break his legs. It says, verse 33, but when they came to Jesus, saw that he was already dead they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, this is John, and the testimony is true, he says, he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So here we now have the confirmation of Jesus' death by those attending his execution. The soldiers, the women, John himself who was there watching this, and even the scriptural fulfillment of how they treated his body. We read here, the soldiers, it says, came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. Now understand, these Roman soldiers, they officiated and, and oversaw crucifixions all the time. They knew when somebody was dead. They, they, it wasn't like this was their first rodeo. They never done. They looked at Jesus and said, he's dead. He's expired. Now, because he was dead, it says, therefore, they did not break his legs. However, verse 34 says, but one of the soldiers pierced Jesus, probably with a spear, it says, immediately and blood and water came out. Now, the reason they're probably piercing him in his side is to just inflict a mortal wound 
just in case they missed the last breath or something and everyone's around. So they now jab this spear up into Jesus' side, this mortal wound, and it says blood and water comes forth. Now, that shows post-mortem or what we might say after-death evidence really of ultimately how Jesus probably died because he was already dead at this point. Remember, he had committed his spirit to God and expired physically. The fact that blood and water came out, probably what we have here is water mixed with blood is probably the pericardial fluid around the heart area. When a person is under tremendous physical stress and sometimes emotional stress as well, as the heart begins to fail, fluid begins to fill around the pericardial sac which is surrounding the heart area. So as this soldier thrusts his spear into the side of Jesus, no doubt it goes in, punctures this pericardial sac in the heart area, and therefore the blood and water from that pericardial sac comes flowing out the entry wound now at that moment. Now people philosophize all kinds of different ideas of what that means and represents and this and that. Let me tell you what it means. He's dead. That's what John's trying to say here. John is trying to say, that's why he says verse 35, look, I've seen this, my testimony, I'm telling you, it's the truth. John wanted to ensure us the soldier saw he was dead and he said in that wound, if nothing else, that ensured he was dead. John is trying to emphasize there is no question. Jesus did not swoon. Jesus clinically died. He was dead. He was physically expired as a man. The death of Jesus, understand, is a necessary part of our salvation. Because Hebrews 2 says he tasted death for all of us so that he could overcome the death process. And these things were happening fulfilling scripture. Now after he dies, notice the Bible gives us a brief record of his burial in verse 38 as the chapter concludes. It says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he could take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so he came and took the body of Jesus and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, remember John 3, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, and they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom was of the Jews to bury. So here at this point, we now see these two wealthy, influential men with prominent positions in society, come out of the shadows to openly express their love and devotion towards Jesus. Two men mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea, mentioned in all four Gospels. The Bible tells us he's a rich man. It says as well that he was a just and good man, a prominent council member waiting for the kingdom of God. And here John adds that he was a disciple of Jesus, verse 38, but secretly. He wasn't open yet in regards to his faith. Secondly, we read that Nicodemus was there who had come to Jesus at night. And remember John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus had that conversation about being born again. And apparently Nicodemus at a certain point put his faith in Christ as Savior and was born again. And now he's a follower of Jesus. And we know as well, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler among the Jews, an influential man and had to be pretty wealthy to be able to afford a hundred pounds of aloe and spices and myrrh that he brings to prepare the body of Jesus. So what we're told here is after his death, Joseph finds the courage to use his influential position to go to Pilate and to use his position to ask permission for the body of Jesus because they want to dignify his death and at least give him a decent burial. 
So he goes, asks permission, as he's granted permission. Nicodemus meets him at the burial site there, at the, at the execution site, to work now together. And like, understand, please, these two wealthy, influential men, like morticians, they now remove the dead, bloodied, battered body of Jesus from that cross and begin, it says, the custom of burial of the Jews, preparing it. And so it's such a difficult process. We have to just, again, imagine what that would have been like, what it involved. Listen, the manual labor alone. He was in an elevated position with iron spikes through his wrists and his feet, which means they had to somehow get up to the area, remove the iron spikes, and even just manually lift his bloody, limp, dead body down from where it was. Listen, I, for a few years, worked with a, a funeral home doing body removals, and, and this is manual work. They, with their bare hands, were picking up a dead corpse. And on top of that, can you imagine how bloodied they were getting by touching Jesus? The blood that was all over him, then having to wash his body to prepare it, the dried blood and picking out the thorns from his head and the splinters from his back and cleansing him, the dirt that was on him. And imagine the, the emotional experience of all this as they're doing this. I just imagine as they're doing this, there's probably not a word being said. There's probably just tears streaming down their face. I mean, did they in the midst of this have to on occasion just walk away and just have an emotional breakdown? as they're preparing the body of Jesus now for burial. And it says they put the strips of linen on him and the spices to hinder the decomposition odor. And verse 41 and 42 says, In the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So we need to see the dead body of Jesus now put into this new tomb. The Bible tells us that actually was Joseph's tomb and it happens to be right by the execution site. And there's a garden in that area and to this day they found an excavation near the place of the skull, a garden and a water cistern and a burial site, this tomb, Gordon's Calvary. And a tomb is basically just like a cave. It's kind of carved out of the solid rock. They would carve it out by hand and they would roll like a disc, like look like a big disc in front of the opening to seal off the tomb. And here, after they prepare the body of Jesus, they put his body in that tomb. It's sealed away. The religious leaders request a Roman guard because they say this man said he'd rise from the dead and we don't want people to steal his body and say he rose from the dead. So seal it up so nobody could steal his body away. Thanks, now we know he really rose from the dead. Don't mean to spoil the story for next week, but... <laughs> but I want you to consider this, this morning. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And I want you to take notice with these two men in this story, who once were kind of timid followers of Jesus... They were kind of hiding out in the shadows. But when they saw the love of Jesus for themselves, when they came into personal contact with the life of Jesus themselves and his blood shed for them and his wounds and his suffering, something about that said to them, I don't care what anybody thinks anymore. I'm going to openly follow this man Jesus I'm going to show my love express my devotion to him serve him sacrifice whatever it takes to help him and I'll tell you this morning I ask again have you truly for yourself for yourself seen what Jesus has done for you
Because like Nicodemus and Joseph, if you do, it'll impact your life. It'll impact your life. And how were they showing their love for Jesus? Think about it. By serving and caring for his body. You want a great way to show your love for Jesus? You can serve and care for his body, the body of Christ. Shall we stand together and pray?